Good morning. I thought about wearing some torn, skinny jeans, but I didn't want to make y'all lust. And then we'd have to have confession, so just thought, why, why do that? Why? Hey, I'm down 41 pounds, baby. That's all I'm saying. I'm 41 pounds. And just to prove all the other people wrong, I've done it without being in the gym. So see, it is possible to be healthy and not be healthy, just so y'all know. Hey, um, I am excited about our text today, John chapter 12. We're actually going to skip John 11 today. Um, I have asked my good friend Joey Montoya to come next Sunday, and he is going to share John 11, and you are not going to want to miss that. That is going to be amazing and power-packed, and so... uh, Make your plans to, to weather whatever storm or sunshine is next week and uh, come out and be here. Uh, John chapter 12. We have, uh, you know, we've traveled quite a journey uh, in our The Curtain Goes Up series. Um, you know, I mean, this is week 18 of this series, and we, uh, we're about to hit some, some really, really powerful powerful stuff, not that the other stuff hasn't been powerful. Uh, This text to me, um, it's not like, oh, I want to go preach John 12, but there is something about this text in John 12 that just has grabbed a hold of me through the years. And I've uh, I'm probably going to take a different angle than I've ever taken before, and uh, I want to just kind of wrestle with this with you this morning, maybe kind of open your mind and horizons to see something a little bit different. Hopefully, uh, that's the way this will work out this morning. Um, you know, the Beatles said, all you need is, and Tina Turner said, what's got to do with this. Somewhere in between those two is the gospel of John chapter 12. Somewhere in between those two is, I just solved all life's problems for you right there, didn't I? You're like, hey, anytime I'm struggling, I'm just going to turn to John 12 and it's going to all, it's just going to all line up for me. Uh, Let's read this together. Six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. You're going to hear about that next week, chapter 11. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, shucker, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with the scripture, there is another time where Martha is serving a a meal and Jesus is there and she whines and complains because Mary won't get up and help. And so that's a whole other story. Um, Verse three, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, not to be mistaken with lard, but nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Kind of like the church is filled with the fragrance of essential oils, just so y'all know. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why was it this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Wow. Oh, Shaggy. Um, Leave her alone, Jesus said, verse 7. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. I mean, poor guy's just been raised from the dead. They're already planning to kill him. Uh, For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, I just want to kind of just set this stage. We, we don't know what point this is after the, the raising of Lazarus, but you know, the John 11 passage tells us that they were friends, they were good friends, and Jesus finds himself with his disciples, and he's back in their home. There's this meal they're going to celebrate. They're, they're just going to, you know, it's probably some gratitude. It's just uh, rekindling their friendship, spending some time just talking about all these things. And Mary, 
Mary does some things that, let's just say, are a little bit scandalous. Um, in that culture, a woman didn't put down her hair unless she was uh, in the prostituting business. It, it was beyond decorum. It wasn't the way you acted in public. It wasn't a normal thing for a woman to do. Um, she takes this expensive perfume, probably part of her dowry, probably part of her wedding price if she's ever going to get married, and she pours it out. She empties the contents in an extravagant way. Um, you know, and then you got to go, okay, what's going on that Mary would react like this? I mean, it's not like she had never seen Jesus before. It's not like they weren't already close. It's, it, there's all this stuff. And you would kind of say, Mary, you're acting a little, you know, a little irrational. You're, you're acting not just extravagant, but kind of creepy extravagant. I mean, you just wipe the man's feet with your hair. Well, if you kind of take all that in, Mary is filled with probably gratitude. She's probably filled with a lot of things. But I think the bigger deal is kind of an odd thing. And then there's been some things made of this that really shouldn't be made of this. But Here's my assumption is that Mary is in love. Now, I don't mean she's in eros love, erotic love. I mean, she's so filled with love for her Messiah. She gets it. She understands who he is. Now, there are four words uh, in four primary words that are used in the Greek language uh, to talk about love. Now, we have one in English. I mean, we love our coffee and we love our kids. And depending on if it's good coffee or bad coffee and good kids, bad kids, that love can wane either way. But that's a different story. Um, Storhe would be like family love, familial love. Um, Eros would be the kind of romantic sexual passion that you would feel in towards your spouse. Uh, Phileo would be deep friendship. And then there's agape. Now, there are other words that are used, but here are the four primary words to describe the relational love that we experience. And agape is really a, a pretty profound um, word because it is the unconditional, unending, unlimited love of God that he pours out towards mankind, um, which I don't know about you, but that's just kind of a phenomenal thought. Now, here's the question that people have asked for centuries and 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 we'll continue to ask, can humans give agape love back to God? Can we respond in a way that gives that unending, unconditional, unlimited love back to God? And people have been trying to figure that out. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would tend to say probably not because we're broken and we're fickled. Do y'all know what the word fickled is in California? Y'all know fickled? Anybody not know fickled? All right. I just want to make sure we're all talking the same language here. Um, because, you know, Southern is close to the heart of God, just so y'all know. Um, so, you know, and what God has poured out is so unbelievable. And really, it's unbelievable because people can't believe that God would love in that way because people don't love us in that way. And human love is broken. Human love is imperfect. Uh, you know, when two people get married, uh, I mean, it's two broken people trying to figure out how to love each other in the right way. And they're going to spend most of their time loving each other by forgiving each other. Amen? Thank you. Um, Karl Barth, who famous theologian, was asked one time, what's the most profound, complex, biblical truth that you've ever experienced, you've ever encountered? And his answer was, Jesus loves me. This I know. The most complex, theological, biblical truth that, that one of the leading theologians has ever encountered is this idea that Jesus loves me. This I know. But I think that we need to reverse some of that to really get what Mary has done. Because I think Mary would say, Jesus knows me. This I love. I think Jesus would say, he knows me. Jesus knows me. I mean, you, you, when you stop and think about that, 
Think about all you've done. Think about the choices you've made. Think about the relationships you've messed up. Think about the people you've hurt. Think about the things you've hurt yourself. Think about the thoughts that come in your mind sometimes when nobody or you hope nobody knows what you're thinking. And God pours out agape love, unending, unlimited, unconditional love. Now, I don't know about you, but that's like, that Jesus looks at us and he knows us. He knows the deep part of us. He knows the way that we are kind of messed up in the head. You can just kind of look at your person sitting next to you. You can look at yourself and go, you're messed up in the head. And that's just the truth. That's just the truth. Because our thinking sometimes doesn't go like this. Sometimes it goes, And Jesus knows me. And Mary gets up from that dinner, gets up, and she lets down her hair, and she begins to pour out the thing that is of most valuable in her life. I mean, she's saving this probably as part of a wedding price, or or this is going to be something she's going to be able to live on if she needs to sell it. Year's wages. I mean, think about you taking whatever it is you make in a year and coming and just laying it at the feet of God and saying, I just want to give this to you and I'm going to walk away. And, and she then takes her hair and she just begins to, to dry his feet. That's a little odd. It's a little extravagant. But there's something about the way that Jesus knows her that has spurred her on to something extravagant. She's in love. Now, once again, not erotic love. She is so overwhelmed that God knows her and still loves her anyway. And you ever thought about that in your relationship? whether you're married or single, your parents, you've done things that there's every reason for somebody to give up on you. And and when somebody knows not just what you've done or what you do, but they can look into the window of your soul and they can still love you. Um, John Wesley, who is pretty familiar if you have anything to do with the Methodist background or if you've studied any of church history, uh, he uh, got on a ship to sail to Georgia to be a witness, a missionary to the Indians that lived along the coast. He was on the ship with a group of Moravians. Now, the Moravians are radical, crazy people. The Moravians are kind of people that preceded modern-day charismatics. They were known for for outbursts. They were known to pray at all times in all places. They were known to do some things that made people run from them because they made them uncomfortable because of the way they loved God. Matter of fact, that ship got caught in a massive storm, and John Wesley wrote later that he was terrified for his life, and the Moravians kept singing, and they kept praising God, and they asked him if he was afraid, and he said he was afraid, so they just began to pray over him. And then as they got to Georgia, the Moravians were there to, to witness as well. And he went to some of the people And this is John Wesley's own words. About a quarter before nine, while the leader of the Moravians was describing the change that they had experienced in God, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And Wesley at once began to pray earnestly for his enemies and publicly testified to all present what he now felt. Now, here's a guy that went on a missionary trip, and what he realized was is he knew the law of the Word of God. He didn't know the heart of the Word of God. And something about the way the Moravians prayed over him and spoke into his life, he said he felt a warmth that he had never felt before. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about the Moravians. These are crazy people. They wanted to free slaves from slavery. But they were like, okay, how are we going to 
teach them the gospel. So some of the Moravians actually sold themselves into slavery so they could be with the slaves to share the good news of Jesus with them. Now let's talk crazy. But that's how much they loved God. And when people encountered the Moravians, what poured out of them was the Spirit of God, the truth of God, the love of God that people said were infectious. John Wesley, who is one of the known reformers, knew the law of God. But it wasn't until he experienced the Spirit of God and the love of God that he felt the warmth of God, which was life-changing. I mean, in thinking through the love of God, the love that God had for Mary, she gave everything. She poured out everything. She was in love with her God. She was in love with her God. She was in love with her God. Um, some of you have probably seen this. There have been a lot of studies done. Uh, they've been trying to figure out um, different parts of the brain and what it has to do and how it, it responds to different stimulus. And so uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a, a person, that, a lady that did a TED Talk, a doctor, neurologist, that she had asked for a lot of volunteers of people that said they were in love. And she put them in an MRI tube, and she began showing them different pictures of people in their life. And when it came across the picture of the person they said they were in love with, they tracked what happened in the brain. Now, there were at least three areas of the brain that lit up sort of like a Christmas tree, if you will, when the person or what they were in love with happened. The, the three areas are the reward-pleasure part of the brain, the reward-pleasure part of the brain, which, by the way, is dangerous because, uh, you know, your body secretes oxytocin in massive amounts, and oxytocin does a lot of things. Uh, it's a bonding chemical. It draws you to. It can draw you to the wrong person. And a lot of problems can happen if you bond to the wrong person. But if you bond to the right person, it, it gives this pleasure and reward center that just your brain just like, la. <laughs> Y'all didn't know I could do that, did you? <laughs> and then the second area is the calculated risk area. You know, it's kind of like when you're, you're playing poker and you, you say, I'm all in. I'm all in. You shouldn't go all in. <laughs> But there's that risk area where you're willing to lay something on the line because you, you feel something and your brain begins to respond in ways and you're like, oh, yeah. And then the third area is the attachment because see, oxytocin runs through all of those areas and you begin to bond. Isn't that phenomenal? Something that you love when you encounter that or that person, your brain lights up. I think Mary, if you put an MRI on her brain, when she thinks about how Jesus thinks of her, when Jesus looks at her and knows her, and he still loves her, her brain would light up. Now, you got another character in this story in Judas. Now, if you kind of compare Mary and you compare Judas, I mean, Mary's pouring out what she saved. She's giving what's valuable to her. She's responding in love. And Judas is sitting back going... You, you, you shouldn't have wasted that. I mean, I could have stole that later if you'd have sold it. I mean, you know, you, we, we have all these opinions of Judas. Um, it's kind of like Star Wars, okay? There's a generation, there's a generation that's probably a little bit older, that when we encountered Star Wars, we started with episode... Four, which we thought was episode. And the kids who are Star Wars crazies today, they started with episode. Now, if you started with episode four, you have a far different view of Darth Vader than the younger generation does. Why? Because you were introduced to the Dark Lord. <laughs> Luke. <sighs> and, and you have a view of that, but... Generation next generation, they have a view of Darth Vader as who? Anakin. Young, talented, passionate, good guy who gave in to being manipulated in the forces and all that. And the older people are going, uh-uh, that's a bad dude right there. That's a bad dude. You cannot wear a Darth Vader t-shirt. 
And you sure can't wear a Sith Lord shirt. Forget that. (laughs) You think about the different views, but then there's that point in which Darth Vader is kind of, sort of kind of redeemed because he does what? He saves his son. Throws the evil Lord over. And the music goes off and the climax builds. Well, why did he do that? Because somewhere deep in him, he had what for his son? L-O-V-E. Somewhere deep, he had love for his son. You see, love changes us. Love leads to different behaviors. It can lead to a different life. People in love do extravagant things. They do emotional things. They do sacrificial things. People in love, their brains light up. Um, and, and this isn't across the board, and we, we, we know that. But, you know, there are people that are addicted, and they are trapped by all kinds of things. And there's a pretty high percentage of those people that when they get, with the female, if they get pregnant, the thought of that baby and falling in love with that baby now, not all of them fall in love with them, so let's don't delude ourselves. But the one that falls in love with that baby, what happens? They head in a different direction from their addiction. Or they love that baby enough to say, I'm not able to give them what they need, but I'm going to stay clean, and I'm going to let that baby have a chance at life. And I mean, you think about the love that it takes for a mother to say, I'm going to give this baby to a family that can give that baby what that baby deserves and needs and all that. And people criticize those mothers, but that is maybe one of the most unselfish acts of love that there can be. Love leads us to do emotional, sacrificial, crazy things. I mean, wouldn't you say that's what Mary just did? But let's keep looking at Judas, okay? I mean... There are people that say, well, Judas is just a traitor. That's why he was born. That's all he'll ever be. He was just a bad dude, a horrible dude. But wait a minute. Take a step back. Let me give you some some other things to think about with Judas. Judas. Judas was a disciple. Judas was chosen by God. Judas was a witness to the resurrection of Lazarus. Judas was a witness and a foreteller of the kingdom of God. He was not just one of the twelve. He was the treasurer. He hung out with Jesus for at least three years. He was close to Jesus. He's not the dark Lord. He's Anakin. The defining moment comes because think, we don't hear a whole lot about Judas all through the Gospels. We only hear about him a couple times. And now all of a sudden in John 12, John decides, let me just tell you who this guy is. He's a punk. He's a thief. He steals. He's greedy. He doesn't care. What he is is he's not in love with Jesus. He's in love with something else. I'm so glad in 2019 none of us struggle with that. I'm so grateful that in our heart of hearts and our arrogance and our pride, we are not struggling with that right there. You see, that kind of redefines the categories, doesn't it? Just a little bit. I mean, if if you're looking for the opposite of love, I mean, a brain in the place that is opposite of love would be joyless, would be risk-free, and would be extremely, extremely disconnected. If love is being attached and being willing to risk and being willing to do some sacrificial, crazy, emotional thing. I mean, something in in Judas pushes him to make decisions, not based on love, but probably based on fear. Jesus isn't going to do it the way I think he ought to do it. I think he ought to kick the Romans out. I think he ought to kill them. He ought to do this. He ought to do that. And he's not going to do that. He just keeps loving people. And I'm sick and tired of watching him love people because they don't love us. Does that sound like any of us? 
Love leads us to see life differently. The problem is, is that we preach and we talk about Jesus and the way he loved, and when we get an opportunity to love someone different than us or radically opposite of us, what do we do? He's a punk. He's a traitor. He's a thief. He's, a, he's this. He's this. He's this. I get it, but... I mean... Think about it this way. In Mark 14, in the, where Mark tells the story of Mary anointing Jesus, Jesus says, I think it's 14.9, he says that what Mary has done will be talked about wherever and whenever the gospel is told. What? Jesus is about to go to the cross and die for the world, and Jesus says what Mary has done for me, whenever people talk about the gospel, they're going to talk about what she did. What? You mean to tell me that you're equating Jesus, her pouring out her perfume and wiping your, your feet with her hair as on equal plane with the cross? Yeah. What? How does that work? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, you think about it. Jesus is about to break open his life and pour it out for the redemption of the world because he's in love with his creation. Now, Jesus is love, and if love is all you need, Beatles, how do you get that kind of love? Jesus knows me. This I love. And that's perplexing and confusing because how can Jesus love me when I don't even love myself? Do you know what I've done? Do you know where I've been? Do you know what I've thought? But Mary is so comfortable in her own skin, by the way, which is maybe one of the greatest gifts that we can have is when we become comfortable in our own skin. Philip Yancey, who's one of my all-time favorite authors, wrote a book called Vanishing Grace. And in it, he interviewed a chaplain who cared for the dying. Every day she went in and she gave care to people who had terminal illness. And he asked her, he says, how do you do it day in and day out? How do you walk into those rooms? And she said, before I enter the room, I pause at the door and I imagine God that he's got a big picture and it's just full of love. And I just say, God, would you just fill me up with your love? And she just said, I just stand there and I just let God just pour his love into me. And then when I walk in that room, I try to find, God, where do you want me to pour it out? Where do you want me to give it away? She postures her life in an attitude of receiving. Now, let's just say that's counterintuitive. Because religion... And religious people will tell you and make it, no, you got to give more, you got to do more, you got to sacrifice more. But listen, you don't have an inexhaustible resource in you. There's a point at which you pour out, and if you're not being filled, you become empty and dry. Is some of the reasons that marriage is in is because one person keeps pouring out and giving and pouring out and giving and pouring out and giving, and if they aren't being filled, what happens? They crash. They can't keep doing it. Receiving agape love... Receiving the unlimited, endless, unconditional love of God, and then we pour it out into the world. Now, it's not as perfect coming from us as what we receive from God, but we're giving away the best parts of it. Why? Because He keeps giving us the best parts of it. We give like Jesus did. I mean, think about it. Hebrews 12. Did we just go dead? We all right? You hear me? All right. There's a hum, by the way. Hum. Um, you, you, you think about it. In Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 doesn't say that, that Jesus looked at what was ahead and for the tremendous pain and horror and the job at hand, he went to the cross and gave it all for us. No, it says that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. What? The joy? He knew that we needed him. And he knew it was only the agape love that he had for the world that would do anything for anybody. It was only the agape love. And he was willing to go. It wasn't a duty. It wasn't a job. It was for the joy. Well, how do we keep love alive in us? Because we can't always be the one giving. We have to receive. We have to be filled. And as we're 
filled, then we pour out. You can't give love if you aren't steadily receiving what God has for you. Mary is pouring out what God is pouring in. Mary is pouring out what God is pouring in. There is a mutuality of love. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. It's the posture of love. Now, that's not the only act of Mary. Remember, she had sat at the feet of Jesus before. And Martha said, look, this is not the way we do it in this society, Jesus. She needs to get out of that room. She's not allowed. She's a woman. She needs to be in here helping me because I'm working my fingers to the bone doing what I'm supposed to do. She has no business being a disciple. And Jesus said, Martha, 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 Martha. Mary has chosen what's better. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just say it was better to be a disciple than it was to be a servant? No, Mary, Mary's chosen to let me feel her and help her understand the love God has for the world. And then she's going to serve, but she's going to serve from her fullness. She's going to serve from her capacity. She's going to serve from receiving agape love so she can give. Because Martha, you're serving and you're amazing at it, but guess what? You're pretty bitter. Because by the way, you're checking attendance and you're giving gold stars and sugar cookies for people who do it right. Which by the way, was a tactic of the church to get kids to come to Sunday school. Not saying that that was a great thing, I'm just saying it happened. Mary had sat at his feet, chose the place of the disciples. She changed the social norm. She sat at the feet of the rabbi Jesus in which is consistent with being on the journey with Jesus. And so here's a question for us. How's your love life with Jesus? If, if you were put in an MRI and we had some fantastic picture of Jesus, not Fabio Jesus, but you know, like a real picture of Jesus. <laughs> and somebody said, hey, Jesus, would your brain light up like a Christmas tree? Would your brain light up because you have those amazing, amazing reward pleasure center because, man, you know he knows you and he loves you anyway? Would, would, you, would your risk center go, oh, man, let's jump all in with Jesus like the Moravians? Would, would you attach because, oh, just the thought of the way and what? Oh, yeah. Would, would our priorities speak of being in love with Jesus? I mean, there's a gazillion questions. I'm not here to manipulate you, but you've you got your own questions. Probably right now you're thinking, oh, my brain light up. Or would your brain light up thinking about little white power? Or what's in a glass bottle or aluminum can? Or pictures of dead presidents? that you collect in your wallet? What, what lights you up? What have you given yourself to attach to? What, what's the driving force for who you are? We've got to see the love of God, we've got to experience the love of God, and we've got to give the love of God. Here's the deal. God can't make us love Him. He can't make us. Well, he could, but he's not. He doesn't hold us down and go, I'm not, I'm not pulling you up until you surrender. Say uncle. It's our choice at the reality that Jesus poured his life out for us. I mean, the story of the rich young ruler, the guy Jesus said, look, why don't you just let go of all that stuff and come follow me? And the guy like went away sad. And scripture says that Jesus looked at him with love. Jesus like, dude, I love you, but you love something else. Love has to be received and given. It's called a relationship. Are you joyful? Are you risky with your faith? Are you deeply attached or are you joyless, risk-free, and detached? Because here's the deal about Judas. If Judas knew, if Judas knew, if he only knew that Jesus would have taken him back, See, Judas was left holding the bag, literally. He went back to the religious leaders and says, here, take the 30. I don't want it. I can't do anything with it. They said, absolutely not. It's nothing to us. You're, what you've done, you've done. 
And unfortunately, in his brokenness, in that torment of who he started out as and the crucial decisions he made to give himself to something else, he couldn't live with himself. Does that sound like a horrible guy? He's a bad guy? Or is he a guy that made a bad decision? Be careful how you answer that. It resembles you and I an awful lot of our life. He didn't know that he could have gone to the cross and received the love of God. Because that's the reason Jesus went to the cross. He died to overcome the trap of religion, and Judas died in the trap of religion. Because we talked about this in the Roman series. The law says you should, you don't, you're bad. And that's where Judas's life ended. We all fight it, joyless, risk-free, and detached. In 1909, a young man named Bill Borden, called by his parents, William, he graduated from Yale and he went on to Princeton. And somewhere in all that, he felt the Lord calling him to go and to share the good news of Jesus. He was particularly drawn to the Muslims in northern China. By the way, William Borden as his parents called him, was the heir of an incredible fortune. His parents were incredibly wealthy. When he told his parents of his plans to go to northern China to share the good news of Jesus, his father told him, if you go, then you are cut off from your inheritance. And he went. His dad communicated with him and told him if he didn't come back before the end of the year, that you won't even be allowed to have a job in my company. And he stayed. A year into his training in northern Egypt, he got meningitis and he was dead within a month. They sent his stuff back to his mom, and as his mom was going through stuff, she found his Bible. And in the back of his Bible, he had three dates and three sayings. The first date was the date that he got the letter from his father telling him that if he went to northern China, he would be cut off from his inheritance. And he wrote this word, these words, no reserves. The next date was the date that he got the letter from his father saying, if you don't come back before the end of the year, you won't even have a job. And he said, no retreats. And on the date that he got diagnosed with meningitis, he wrote his last two-word phrase, no regrets. To live a life of love, a life that isn't normal, filled with extravagant love that comes from Jesus, love has everything to do with it. Tina Turner was wrong. Big shock. Agape love poured out into us has to be poured out through us. But as it filters through us, it has to change our perspectives. It has to change our perspectives of what it really means to live. And my friends, you know as well as I do, that's not an easy thing, is it? Because we've got messages coming at us rapid fire that are telling us to hate this, to hate that, to exclude this, to exclude that, this, that, this. This is what will make you happy. If you do enough of this, you won't feel any pain. This, 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 and this. There's only one thing. The unlimited, unconditional love of God that can change anything. It changes the deep parts of us. Many of us have lost a lot in our life because we, we attach to the wrong thing. Isn't it amazing that we're sitting here this morning and God's yet given us another opportunity to choose the one thing that will change our life? One thing. The unconditional, unlimited love of God. And it's hard because, listen, life doesn't line up fair. 
And there's more than a few people that are struggling because there's somebody they love or some things going on in their life and they can't figure out and they don't know. And God, where are you? And where are you? And where are you? And where are you? And yes, I get it. 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 And so it's going to come from how we see the world. It's going to come from how we see the world. Maybe that's why I'm so taken with the Moravians. These crazy people with a ship that's about to sink in the middle of the ocean. They're just singing and praising God. Praying for whoever will let them pray. Lifting up the name of Jesus. Now, some of that we would think, oh, that's a little Pollyannish. But ultimately, we're going to die. And we're going to see somebody on the other side of that. I think it'd be a pretty good idea to choose the guy that's going to live forever. I'm crazy that way. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, as we uh, take communion today, Lord, as we go take the bread and the cup, Lord, would you meet us in this place? Lord, I pray that our brains would light up this morning when we hold the, the cracker and the cup. Lord, reminding us that the body of Jesus was broken and poured out and the blood was poured out to forgive us, overcome our sins. And Lord, by faith, when we receive you, we are secure, God, with you or in your hand. You say no one can take us from you. So Lord, would you do your work in us? Would you speak in words that can't be uttered? Lord God, would you give us that warmth, Lord, that reminder of the attachment, the the risk, the love that you have for us? Lord, I pray for those that need to just walk over in that prayer room and just sit down with somebody and say, just pray, just pray, just pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's take communion this morning.
Stand with us and sing one more song.
teach my soul to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, and when I cannot stand or fall on you, Jesus, you're my hope and Go in peace. <laughs> it the air of